Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, August 16th, we are studying Lamentations chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. Those who pass by Jerusalem see the great sorrow that the Lord has inflicted upon his people, and the people confess that the Lord has been just in punishing them for their rebellion. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me on again. So we are talking Lamentations chapter one. We talked about the structure of the book as a whole. and probably recall from last time that we split one poem into two segments to talk about the text in greater detail. So Pastor Heidi, with that in mind, what kind of, I mean, context in terms of poetry is a little bit different of a question than when I asked that, say, about one of the historical books. But we are in the middle of a poem. So what do we need to recall about the poem as a whole, anything about the book as a whole, and historical context, all of that that's going to help us with the verses we've got today. Sure. Uh, The first thing that I would point out, something kind of unique about the Book of Lamentations, is that it is a group of, it's almost a group of poems. Uh, The the five chapters are kind of subsections to this whole book, Um, but it's what's called an acrostic poem. Um, An acrostic is something that we don't really use all that much in English because we tend to think of poetry as being something that rhymes. Um, but it's a much more a visual kind of poem in Hebrew because the first uh, letter of each line of each verse is the is the letter of the alphabet followed by the next one, followed by the next one. So like saying A, B, C, D. And that's what's happening throughout uh, these five chapters because you have the 22 verses of chapter one, which correspond to 22 of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, as well as the 22 in chapter two and chapter four and chapter five. Chapter three being a little bit different because it has 66, because in that case you have groups of three where each, each verse again begins with the, you know, a letter of the alphabet. And what that means for us in, in terms of interpreting this book is that you really kind of have to take things as a group. Uh, so when we're trying to understand chapter one, for example, you don't want to just say, okay, you know, 12 leads into 13, leads into 14, as if there's some kind of sequential kind of understanding. You really have to take them all together to get the full picture of what chapter one is trying to say. So yeah, cutting it in half the way that we have, you know, it it can kind of complicate things because you kind of have to look at the whole chapter, but it does allow us to look at it in greater detail. So in, in terms of the, again, the quote, context, it's not that what preceded in verse 11 is going to be necessarily immediately applicable to understanding verse 12, you know, one verse at a time. Right. But the themes that we've encountered thus far in chapter one are going to carry over 
and repeat a lot in chapter or the rest of chapter one and be embellished upon. You, you mentioned that Hebrew poetry will often use this acrostic tool. Perhaps one of the most famous acrostic Hebrew poems is Psalm 119, which uses each Hebrew letter eight times in, in sort of eight verse stanzas. And we see it in other places as well. Another feature of Hebrew poetry that I don't think we mentioned in the previous episode, but is important, is this idea of parallelism. Mm-hmm. That idea in an idea in the first line will be repeated or contrasted or emphasized or expanded upon in the next line. And sometimes that happens not only line by line, but in verse by verse or from stanza to stanza. So again, that that's all of that is to say we need to recognize the genre that we're reading. This is poetry. It's Hebrew poetry, and that's going to influence how we read it. So what are some of the themes that were in the previous 11 verses that are going to show up and be expanded upon in the text we've got today? Before I answer that, I just wanted to say real quick, I had mentioned to my Bible study a while ago that in Hebrew poetry, it's not the words that rhyme, it's the ideas that rhyme. So you want to think, you want to think in terms of the ideas when you're trying to understand this. Um, but when it comes to the, the first 11 verses, of course, you have the, the lamentation over the city itself, over Jerusalem and its destruction, and the, the exile which has come upon it. Uh, that is something that's going to continue throughout, these next, throughout the rest of this chapter, and also talking about uh, issues of sin and the kinds of sin that led to this destruction, uh, again, is going to be emphasized and kind of expanded upon as we go throughout But when we finally get towards the end of this chapter, you're going to see something of a newer idea that we should keep in mind with uh, all of this, which is talking about, you know, you know, how we're supposed to respond to all of this. You know, Lamentations is not saying, you know, this is so sad. I'm I'm just completely depressed. Lamentations is actually a book of hope and in the midst of of distress. And we're going to see that as we go through this. Lamentations is a book of hope. Yes. Let's, let's 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 talk a little bit about that without without spoiling everything, I suppose. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that for for American Christians particularly, and that's really all I can speak to because that's what I am, an American Christian. Right. So I mean, I think we've we've kind of lost the idea of lamentation, or it doesn't always fit into our frame of mind as as part of the Christian life. But you've got a whole book called Lamentations. If you've ever read the Psalms, you know Lamentations are, are a part of the Psalms. We see our own Lord lamenting. What, what is it? How does Lamentation, not the book itself, but the idea of Lamentation, how does that fit into the life of the Christian? And, and how does that move us toward hope, as you're saying? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the Lamentation fits into our lives, I think, probably the same way uh, some of the imprecatory Psalms do. The, the cursing psalms, you know, again, the kind of poetry that we tend to shy away from uh, in the book of Psalms. It is this expression of, in Lamentations, it is an expression of deep grief, uh, just as in the, the, the imprecatory psalms, you have an expression of deep grief as well, especially over something which is happening. A lament being something which has happened to you and your, your situation. The imprecatory being, you know, you want something to be done about some enemies, especially, and how they're afflicting you. So we will hear some of that language here also in Lamentations as you go through the book. But the reason why it expands into hope and why it is ultimately a hopeful book is because it is not just lamenting without a purpose. It's not saying like, 
I'm so sad about what's happened. Woe is me. And things are never going to get better. This kind of self-deprecating, you know, I'm just feeling really sorry for myself kind of lamentations. It really is a expression of, you know, this has happened to us. This is why this has happened. But God is going to do something about it. And that's really the, the hope that comes out of all of this is that there is purpose in the midst of this suffering, as well as a hope that one day these, these things will be overcome. All of that is very well said. And, and I, I, I agree with you completely. You know, that's not just we're not just self-pitying, wallowing in the in the misery, but there is that movement to the hope. I guess maybe the, the struggle that I think I know sometimes I have is why do I need to lament in the first place? Why can't I just go straight to the hope? Why, mm-hmm. why the why if if I'm if there's that danger maybe of wallowing in self pity, just you know feeling sorry for myself? Why do I need to lament before the hope? Because I, I think I think maybe that's what is sometimes missing that sure. we even need to lament. We think we should just sort of grin and bear it and get straight to the hope. Why do we need the lament? Well, why do we need to confess our sins? <laughs> I mean, it really does come down to that. And that's what Lamentations recognizes is that it's a lament over the fall of Jerusalem because they have sinned and they're recognizing the depth of that sin. They're recognizing that what has happened is just. It is something which is they have deserved because of their sin. And for that reason, their lament is over the city and its destruction, but it's also over their own actions that led to that destruction. You know, the city would not be gone if they hadn't done these things in the first place. And so they need to lament and say, you know, this this is what we have deserved. And yeah, we don't like the idea of talking about sin or lamenting my own sin, but it is part of the Christian life. I must recognize that I am a sinner before I can move on to the hope which comes through Jesus Christ. Because without without recognizing sin, you're never going to feel true repentance for that sin. And as a result, you're never going to understand the work of Christ. Yeah, that's, that's well said, Pastor Heidi. In terms of that destruction of Jerusalem, that's one of the historical contexts of the Book of Lamentations, and this chapter being no exception. Just as a way of refresher from what we read about in the Book of Jeremiah and what's in other places in the Old Testament, why, and maybe this is, I think this is worth talking about because sometimes I think we, you know, 2,500, 2,600 years removed have a hard time of realizing why this is such a big deal to the people of Judah that Jerusalem is destroyed. So can you give us some of that historical context and and help us to, to understand why this is such a tragedy, such a catastrophe for these people? Yeah. Well, the, the, the main historical context is that this is the Babylonian exile, uh, the destruction of the city uh, following Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, the, the northern kingdom has been gone for a hundred years or so, but this is the final destruction of, of Judah. And with the fall of Jerusalem, it's, it is the end of the kingdom. Uh, the, the line of, you know, the, 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 re- the reign of kings coming from David has been broken in a sense. Uh, you know, there's no longer a king sitting in Jerusalem. And so there is an end to everything that was going on. But what was so distressing about all of this is it has to do with this tension between what is happening and what God has promised. Because God promised to 
Israel promised to Abraham, for example, that they, you know, they would have a land that they would live here. He promised to David that there would be someone on the throne. He promised that they, they would, that he would be in his temple. All of these things, you know, promise after promise after promise, promises which actually led them to become quite complacent. But now uh, these things have come to an end, and so you have this tension between, you know, what. God has said before the promises that he made and how it seems like he's going back on those promises. Now, again, of course, he's not going back on his promises. He never will. But in that moment, that's a very difficult thing to see. Right. Right. Does the book of Lamentations resolve that tension or or give an answer to that tension that the people felt? Um, I think the, the main heart of the book of Lamentations, which of course is in the middle of chapter three, because unlike the way that we think about stories, the the most important part of this book is actually the middle of the the very middle, Um, you know, great is thy faithfulness kind of a thing. I think the resolution that comes in the book of Lamentations is that God is going to remain faithful even when it seems like he has broken his promises. It really is holding on to him despite the appearance of what's going on around and recognizing that even if we are struggling, even if we are suffering, even if the city is destroyed, yet God's mercy will go on. Right. And that, again, that's where the book is moving. We may get a a bit of a foretaste of that in our chapter uh, here at the end of Lamentations chapter one. Any more introductory material, thoughts, comments before we jump right into these verses? No, I think we can go in. All right. So we're picking up now at Lamentations one, verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back, he has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke, by his hand they were fastened together, they were set upon my neck, he caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hand, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. That's the second part of Lamentations 1, verses 12 through 
22. Now, Pastor Heidi, again, going verse by verse, we'll, we'll do the best we can. It is difficult because not always do you find one verse leading into the next. In terms of a, a structure for these verses, is there a, a structure that you see ways that we could group certain verses together? Um, I, I mean, it, it, it really is. You really do kind of have to take them all together because then if you separate them out too much, you might start to think that this is like a unit that is totally by itself. Um, but you could see a little bit of a division between, say, like verses 17 and 18, where it starts to talk about the Lord being in the right. And we'll get to that. Um, so, I mean, there are maybe little tiny subsections, but we really do have to kind of take them all together. So we can just kind of take them verse by verse. Okay, that sounds that sounds good. I do think, I mean, verse eighteen does stand out where they say the Lord is in the right. And that right. that does seem like a really key verse, and I think we're going to spend some time on it. So, verse twelve, the first one that we've got, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger. There's several things we can talk about here. One, this is something that Pastor Linnell brought up in the first study that we had is recognizing who is speaking here is often important. And sometimes there's maybe more than one way to, to think about it. So Pastor Heidi, in verse 12, particularly, who's asking this question? Well, the question is being asked by, I guess you, I mean, did Jeremiah write it? I mean, I, I'm, I tend to think, but I think what he has done here has, is given like Zion, given Israel herself, kind of the the, the speaking role. So this is kind of the personification of Israel speaking out in the midst of her sorrow. And she is speaking out towards, as it says, those who pass by. So in other words, the nations which are surrounding her, uh, calling on them to consider her, her situation. So I think, like I say, I think in this case, you have Israel personified speaking in, in this way. Sure. And I I think that's a fine way to look at it. I suppose where, where my mind is going, and again, something we talked about, is that there are many places in the Book of Lamentations where, especially for us as Christian readers, it's hard not to hear these words as Jesus speaking. And you know, we were chatting a little bit before we started talking about, about that. I recall this from a Good Friday service somewhere along the line. I can't place it perfectly. But I mean, I, I read verse 12, and I man, that sounds a lot like something Jesus would have said hanging from the cross. Sure. And I, I also mentioned at that time that it is a, a very famous part of a poem by uh, George Herbert called The Sacrifice, you know, was ever grief like mine, which is very much a Good Friday kind of theme. And I think you could certainly make that connection because Jesus, after all, is Israel. He is Israel in one, you know, and everything that he does is in fulfillment of what Israel should have done. So in that sense, yes, you could say that this is Christ speaking. Um, but in but we also want to keep in mind here that in terms of lament, we're talking about the destruction of the city itself, right? Right, right. And that, I mean, again, that historical background, and, and especially with the way that the verse ends, this is what the Lord has inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. And I think that particular, the end of verse 12, does bring us into a theme that occurs in several of these verses, that what is happening to Jerusalem, what has happened and in, in the situation they currently exist in, that's the Lord's doing. And that was that theme was present in the first 11 verses, 
but it seems that it's being amplified here in this section and is definitely going to be amplified as we move into chapter two and tomorrow's text. So help us into that that theme that what is happening in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah, this is the Lord inflicting his anger. Right. Yeah. And that's something that I know that we struggle with, especially in these in this day and age, uh, this idea that God is the one who is inflicting disaster. Uh, basically what he's saying is, is that this was no accident. This is not like Babylon just happened to get lucky and managed to overthrow the city. And so now they feel kind of bad about it. Well, in that sense, you could say that there is no such thing as historical accidents because everything happens in history and in time, according to the Lord's pleasure. So in that sense, then uh, God is inflicting upon Jerusalem his, his wrath, his anger, and is punishing Jerusalem for her sins. And that's something we don't want to sugarcoat. We don't want to soften that. This is what the what scriptures say, that God had actually you know, brought disaster upon his own people. And yes, there is going to be kind of the struggle with that. You know, what exactly does that mean and what does that look like for us? But it is something that we want to recognize because if we say that it's just a historical accident or that these things happen apart from him, well, then what does that make God? You know, it, it tends to, to weaken him and to make him into something else when we have to recognize that he is the Lord of all things and he will punish sin both in this life and in, and in the age to come. Well, let's struggle with that a little bit, Pastor Heidi. <laughs> and, and well, because I mean, this I, it's a conversation that I think is going to recur as, as we talk through the book of Lamentations here on Sharper Iron. And I think it's, it's one that often comes to mind within our own experiences as Christians still today, perhaps not in the same depth of sorrow and pain and suffering that the people of Jerusalem and Judah knew at this time, but, but still it, it's there. So on, on the one hand, we certainly don't want to see the things that happen in our own lives and in world history as historical accidents or coincidences. That's, that's not what they are. We know that the Lord is the Lord of history, but I think we could also take that too far as, as well, perhaps, or, or maybe there's, well, I, I think, I don't know who you, I've heard this image from several people. Luther probably used it at, at one point. It's always dangerous to say. I think Luther said this, but <laughs> of, of a horse, right? And you can, you can ride a horse, but you can fall off on one side or the other. And, and it seems to me as we think about these things that we can fall off on, on two sides where on the one hand, you know, when something bad happens to us today, should we recognize the Lord's activity in it? You bet we should. And should it call to repent? Yes. But on the other hand, should we, maybe should we make a one-to-one correspondence that says, I suffered in this way because God is punishing me for X sin. Well, that's probably going too far too. What, what do you think, Pastor Heidi? I think the, the, the struggle with that example that you've given is that we, we're just not sure in many cases, but the scriptures very clearly say in some places that, you know, this happened because of this sin. So I do think, I mean, like the Northern Kingdom, for example, in, in, Second Kings, I can't remember what chapter is that, 17 or something like that, where it basically says like all of this stuff happened because they had sinned and they did these specific sins, their idolatry, their turning away. You know, these were the things that brought these things upon them. So the scriptures do speak that way. But when it comes to our own lives, 
Um, you know, we, I think what would happen is that if we try to figure out that correlation, like this happened because of this sin, we might drive ourselves completely nuts trying to figure it out when it's better to just say that, yes, you know, these things are being visited upon me for my sins and recognizing that it is God who has done them. Does that make sense? I think so. And I mean, I, I think because we don't want to, I think what, what could happen, at least this is kind of what I've been rolling around in my mind with a couple of conversations I've had. If we try to go too far with that one-to-one correlation, what could end up happening is some sort of self-justification where I, I think that if I just fix whatever is wrong that God is punishing me for, then he's going to stop punishing me as if I can somehow justify myself. I, I think I, and I don't know, you can tell me what you think, but I, I wonder if maybe that's the temptation that we're facing is to, or that we're, we're trying to give into that kind of thing is that we think we can justify ourselves. So if I just can figure out what's that one thing I'm doing wrong, I'm going to fix it. And then everything's going to be okay again. When rather the Lord calls me to a, a whole life of repentance. I, does that, does that follow with what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, because like you say, if, if you have it, if you have it down to like, I did this particular sin on this particular day. And so if I just do something to make up for it, then I won't suffer in this way. Yeah, I can see that problem happening. But I think that really does come from the, the very low view which we have of God's wrath against sin. Because we live in a time and age when we honestly don't take God's wrath very seriously. Um, because, you know, we think that he's just going to wink at sin. We think it's just something that we can easily fix. We think that these things which we are suffering, well, they're just minor things which can be overcome. Or even when it comes to disasters, we'll often say, well, it just happened. You know, the weather patterns happened and that's how this you know, tornado came upon us or something like that. And we tend to, to leave God and his wrath out of all of these things. If we, but if we had a much deeper sense of God's wrath and really fully understood, you know, what he was trying to do through this, uh, through these things which we are suffering, I don't think we would fall into that self-justification, like you say. Hmm. I, I think you're right about the way we tend to fall off these days, it, it seems, on the side of thinking that God is absent or isn't at work, where we, we've become perhaps afraid of assigning, you know, too direct of a correlation. So we don't fall into that error, but we do forget like with the pandemic, just as kind of the elephant in the room example, that, well, should the pandemic cause us to examine our lives and repent? Of course it should. I mean, are there things that I need to repent for? You bet I do. Now, does that mean that God necessarily, like, does that mean he sent the pandemic because I did something particularly or because the United States or whatever nation you want to pick, the world as a whole did something particular? Well, I, I can't say that, I suppose. But, but should I repent because of the pandemic? You bet. Does God want me to, to repent when, when something like that happens? I, I think I need to say, yes, I should repent. The, the word's always calling me to repent. And I think sometimes we, we forget that. Sure. Yo, absolutely forget that. Um, I think in terms of, you know, why has this been sent? And in many cases, I think it does come down to more, uh, I guess you could call it national sins or something like that, the, the sins of the group. It's not so much, you know, that I did this one particular sin, although that sin is included, you know, when it comes to the things which I'm suffering, because none of us are without sin. And yes, we are, you know, especially for our, our individual sins, we are suffering judgment. Um, but all of these things which we are undergoing are also things which come from God because of the sins of the nation, 
And Lord knows we have plenty of those. Right. Lord, have mercy upon us. I think that's certainly a prayer that the Book of Lamentations would inspire us to pray. And we're going to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're talking Lamentations Chapter 1 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 16th. We're studying Lamentations chapter 1, verses 12 to 22 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi of St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were talking about verse 12 and some of the various matters that come up around it. In verse 13, again, the Lord is the one doing these things. He sends fire on high. He, he into the bones, he makes that fire descend. He spreads a net. He's left me stunned. Verse 14 brings up an image that I think is, is worth a little bit of time because Jeremiah uses this. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. That's one of the images that Jeremiah used in his, his preaching. What is this image of the yoke that's there in verse 14? How is it being used in Lamentations 1? Well, the yoke being, you know, like what you would set on oxen in order to pull something. It is the imagery of, you know, being bound in that sense. I I suppose you could say it's kind of like being put in the stocks, you know, like you always see in like medieval times or medieval kind of movies where somebody's sitting in the stocks kind of a thing. But basically the the poetic image here is that his transgressions, uh, the transgressions of Israel have been like fashioned into a yoke, which is now leading them into captivity. So, I mean, it is this sense of like, my transgressions have created this uh, binding, which is now upon me in which I cannot shake off. And I need to, and it's it's leading me away into captivity. And of course, it is something which the Lord has fashioned, which of course is the, the continuing idea. Right. Sure. Sure. And and I think, I mean, you know, another reason, again, Jeremiah uses that. He talks about the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar that the people are to submit to in, in his prophecy. So it stands out for that reason. And I think it also stands out because it's, it's one of those handles that, you know, we get to see how Jesus comes along. The words of Jesus in Matthew 11 come to mind where he, he urges us to take his yoke upon us instead of uh, the yoke that we would bear otherwise to take his yoke. How does... How does that? I know that that's moving us to Matthew eleven, but I think it's I think it's connected. So, and, and you know, maybe you hadn't looked at Matthew eleven in preparation for this, Pastor Heidi. So, but oh, I, I trust I trust that you, you you got this. So, how does I mean, how does Jesus transform the yoke that would bind us, and, and what is the yoke that He gives us in its place? Well, the the yoke that Jeremiah is talking about here in Lamentations is the yoke of discipline. It is the yoke of sin, and it is a very heavy yoke to bear. Uh, because ultimately it is leading Israel away into captivity. But the yoke of Jesus is, you know, the the things which he lays upon us, you know, that he has given, he has forgiven us, but now he is showing us the new way. And yes, there is in a sense a way in which we are still bound, I guess you could say, but we are bound to Christ. And in that sense, even though we are bound, it is a, a yoke that you wouldn't even feel. 
<laughs> you know, that, that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Christ has come to take away the heavy yoke, the, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, and to give his yoke one that is much lighter and delightful because, you know, the, the way of Christ is the, the way that leads to life. God be praised. Into, into verse 15 of Lamentations 1, Pastor Heidi, we get some more images. The Lord rejected my mighty men in my midst. I'm reminded of some of the verses in the Psalms, which speak about not trusting in the, the elements of war, but instead in the in the Lord. So the mighty men of Jerusalem were not, were not able to save Jerusalem, as, as was evidenced. We saw that the, at the end of this verse, the Lord has trodden as in a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. The imagery of vineyards and wine presses is a common one in the scriptures. What's being communicated here? Well, it's, I mean, it kind of connecting to the other verses too, but the, the main image here is that uh, the Lord is treading underfoot the virgin daughter of Jerusalem the way that someone would tread underfoot the grapes in a wine press. You know, they don't have uh, screws and, and, and press boards to do their pressing. They, they actually get in with their feet and are pressing it out with their feet. So it is this image of the Lord treading underfoot uh, and connecting to the other, the other part of this verse here is that, you know, the Lord has rejected the armies of Israel. He has uh, summoned the foreign armies against uh, Jerusalem and, is, and through them, in other words, the Lord is actually treading underfoot the city of Jerusalem, as if, you know, just like a someone treading underfoot grapes in a wine press. So again, the ideas are rhyming here. You have to see how they kind of expand on one another. Right, right. And then in, in verse 16, you know, you have a, a, a rhyming idea to some of the things that we encountered in the previous text in the earlier part of chapter one. And I think, you know, expanding upon it, for these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears, the overwhelming sadness uh, that this chapter started with you know, returns here in terms of the the weeping and the fact that there's no comforter here. That was a, a huge theme at the very beginning that Jerusalem had rejected her husband and now has become a widow and all of her other lovers would not comfort her. And again, that, that overwhelming sadness returns here in, in verse 16. Right. Yeah. And it, and again, it's a sadness over the destruction of the city, but also a sadness because of the things that they have done. You see that especially like in verse 17, where it says that Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. It is a, recogni- it is a recognition that she is filthy, that she is dirty, that she has deserved these things, which again, as we'll see in verse 18, when we get to it, that's what we start to see at the turn of this chapter, that Jerusalem deserved these things, but that just increases her her sorrow over the sins that she has done. Right. So again, it's it's not just, woe is me, poor, pitiful me, but there's within this lamentation, there's an element of the confession of sins as well that's starting to come out in the, the matter of weeping and flowing with tears. So take us into to verse 18, because we both said that it's it's an important verse. It begins, the Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. As as I've been reading in the, and again, you know, recognizing it's not necessarily sequential, but but this really seems to be the one of the most obvious recognitions within this first poem that Jerusalem has been brought to repentance, a recognition that Again, the Lord is in the right. He's the just one, and they're the rebels, and that what they're getting is deserved. 
Yeah, and that's something we really do want to emphasize, especially with this confession as we see it in the lament, um, that the Lord is right in punishing Jerusalem. The Lord is just in his ways. The Lord has brought this disaster upon them, and for a good reason, because, as the, the speaker says, I have rebelled against his word. We have not listened to what God has said. We have turned away towards other, you know, other gods. We have turned away towards other nations trying to seek help from the world. And so all of these things that I'm suffering, even as terrible as they are and as, as sad as they make me, I recognize that, yes, I deserve all of it. And so, and that's going to be especially striking because towards like the end of Lamentations, when you get some of the really uh, violent kind of images that will come in as you go through the book, um, basically what it's saying is, is that, yes, we deserved all of it. This isn't an accident. It's not like God decided to do it. And then, you know, it, it just kind of happened the way that it did. No, this is recognizing that all of these things which we are undergoing, all of the destruction, the, the exile, even the violence within the city, all of it has been deserved because of my sin. That's a very striking admission, because I think our, our general tendency when we receive some sort of suffering or trouble in this life is to say, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not just. And and to hear to hear from the people of Judah, or at least some of them, uh, an honest recognition of that is is quite striking. Given given their posture throughout the book of Jeremiah, I mean, in, right. in the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, it was nothing but stubbornness and hardness of heart. It, at least it seemed, but but clearly the Lord has done what He purposed in the destruction of Jerusalem to at least some of His people to see an admission like this. That, that the Lord's law has has done its hard work and has brought them to this confession is really a, a rather miraculous thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, even in our own confession, you know, we need to recognize that, you know, the things which I am suffering is what I have deserved. You know, that that's, I think that's the thing that maybe we struggle with too, is that, yeah, we'll say, okay, you know, I, I sinned, I deserve some punishment, but then when we get the puni- the exact punishment, you know, especially in this life, we become impatient and say, oh, but not that, <laughs> you know, not that for my sins, but rather, you know, something else, this isn't fair. But in reality, when it comes to the, the wrath against sin, what God gives to us is just, he is just in all of his ways, and he will give us justly what we deserve. Hmm. Certainly an important recognition and confession for each one of us. What strikes me about the rest of this verse, though, is that recognizing that I'm receiving the just punishment of my sins, and even if I were to recognize, say, the same about you, that I I recognize that you too receive a just punishment for your sins, the rest of this verse is an appeal for mourning of that and not not a gloating. I mean, it, 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 it strikes me that, that verse 18 is put together the way that it is, that on the one hand, there's this very honest confession that Jerusalem says, I deserve this, but at the same time calls upon others to see the suffering that she's experiencing, not in a gloating over it or a told you so, or haha, you got yours, but rather in a spirit of mourning 
which I, I think is, I mean, at least, um, I, you know, I'm thinking about our life together as Christians, I think is a really important thing for us to recognize that as we all confess these things together as a corporate church, we do so not so that we can gloat over each other, but mourn with each other, uphold each other, support each other. And that clearly that's not what Jerusalem got from her enemies, as we'll see as the as the text continues. But I think that, I mean, that that the way that verse 18 is structured like that, I think is is pretty, that strikes me as important. Sure. Well, and it's also um, a, how do, you, how do I want to put it? Uh, and also it, it glorifies God in that sense, because when God, when we are suffering justly for sin, it shows, first of all, that God is holy. And it also shows that he is a God who carries out what he says. Okay. So the, 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 the invitation to look at my suffering, to see the things which I am going through, this appeal to the nations, is in that way glorifying the Lord in what he is doing and showing that he is in the right. And you can see that by what I am going through. And maybe that's the, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, you know, do we, can we glorify God even when we recognize that God is punishing us for our sins? I think, and I'm not sure it's quite the exact same situation, but I think it, I think it applies the way St. Paul speaks in second Corinthians 12, where he talks about that when he's weak, he's strong and the things that he boasts about. I, I don't think we should say that the things he talks about, the various sufferings that he endures are, are punishments because of his sins, but, but the way that he speaks about those sufferings that he endures in order to glorify God. I think is, again, not the exact same context, but it's it's akin to what, what you're saying there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, in the sense that if you have, um, if you are, are glorifying the Lord in what you say, in what's going, what's happening to you, then you can, you can see that even the things that I am suffering, the things that I'm undergoing, as terrible as they may seem to be, ultimately will raise him up will ultimately be to his glory because, again, it shows his truthfulness, it shows his faithfulness, it shows his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. So we don't want to be impatient with all of these things, but recognize that, yes, this is something which God is doing, and we can glorify him for that too. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's a rather, wow, I mean, what what a strange thing to, to someone who has no faith that— that we can say, yes, I'm receiving my just punishment and that glorifies the Lord. That, that's got to sound strange to, to all ears except those who, who have faith in Christ as the one who justifies. It's just a really, like, that sounds really weird, but, <laughs> sure. but in Christ, it's, it's true. I mean, it's just a, like, that's not the way we would think that I'm going to give God glory even for the ways that he chastises me. In, in order to proclaim the goodness and the holiness of his name, that, that's got to sound weird to the world. But, but man, I think that's something that we, we certainly need to hold on to as, as Christians. Again, not in a, and this is important, not in that self-deprecating, self-pitying way, but in a way that ultimately moves us towards seeing what he's done for us in Christ. I, I thought of like the example of David and the, the child that was born to him from Bathsheba as a result of his adultery. And how he mourns and he mourns for the child and asks, you know, say, it, spare his life, O Lord. But then when the Lord doesn't do that, he basically stops, <laughs> stops his mourning, starts eating again, starts to act as if nothing was wrong. 
And this confuses people so much that they ask him, you know, well, what's going on? And he basically says, well, you know, the child is gone from me and he's not going to return. And in that sense, he glorifies the Lord in his repentance and recognizing that he deserved that judgment, uh, the loss of that particular child as a result of his sin. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a strange thing un- unless there is faith. Yeah. Very right. strange thing. Now, as the text continues, that you hear you hear again similar themes. Judah, Jerusalem calls out to her lovers. They've deceived even the priests and the elders. They're of no help. In verse 20, I think there's a, a significant move there that we've seen previously in this chapter where now the Lord is addressed personally. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. And and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think that's at least one of the hopeful elements of this is that even in the sadness and distress and the, the great trouble that the people of Judah and Jerusalem are in, they've begun already in Lamentations chapter one to call out to the Lord. They're not just wallowing, but they're actually praying about this. Right. Which is why I mentioned also the imprecatory Psalms earlier, you know, the cursing Psalms within the book. Um, Because we're also going to see in verse 22, which we'll get to in just a minute here, uh, an actual, you know, imprecatory kind of prayer. This kind of calling on God to do something about the evil which they're suffering. But this is why the, the hope of this book and the hope of this chapter in particular here is so important to focus on because it's not just, like you say, this wallowing, but it is a recognition that God is going to look upon them in this distress, which he has inflicted upon them, and he's still going to do something about it. That God put all of this on them, and he was right to do so, but they trust in the Lord that the Lord will finally deliver them again. So it's it's a recognition that go, what God is doing right now is not forever. It's not something that's going to go on into eternity, but it is what they have deserved in that moment, and they can look to the Lord for hope and deliverance from that moment. How do the, the last two verses of this chapter, this poem, fit in with that? Because I... Yeah, I think you know with all that. I mean that that's great, but the first, the next two verses strike as like, well, okay, now now you're going to pray that the evil doing of these other nations that God needs to deal with them, and, and at least in my own mind, the first thing I say, hold on a minute, you guys are just now coming to repentance yourselves. You deal with that first before you start asking God to to take care of the other people. It, it seems a little. A little early for that, I guess, is, is the way I start to read it. And I think it, it fits in with some of the things you're saying. So how how does that request of God that you know, these enemies, they've heard of my trouble, Lord, you bring upon them the day that, that I've experienced, you deal with them for their evil doing. How does that fit together with this? Well, it really is a, a very striking expression of, of the gospel. And I know that's probably a very strange thing to say. It is strange. Say more. <laughs> It is an expression of the gospel because what they are calling on God to do is to address the evils which they are suffering, to address these things which they have undergone, the things which they are still suffering, the the enemies which have brought all of these great evils upon them. They want God to do something about it, and God is going to do something about it. And that is where the the gospel kind of comes in because, you know, part of 
part of the gospel is not just that Jesus has died for us and has come to take away our sins. Part of the gospel is also that Jesus reigns as king and will put all enemies under his feet. In other words, the, the victory will be his in you know, completely, not just partially, not just a little, you know, just a little bit, or just in, in this one specific way. Jesus will reign as king over all things, and these things which we have suffered, you know, the evils we have undergone, Jesus is going to set those right too. All of these things will be made right in the time of God, and we can call on God for that reason to visit even our enemies uh, with his own judgment. So this, and this I think is maybe the, the what seems like, it's not, but it maybe seems like a disconnect, where earlier, you know, in verse 18, Jerusalem said, I deserve this. The Lord is in the right. I've rebelled against his word. But that doesn't prevent us as Christians from praying that the Lord would defeat those who mean us harm, that those two things can can go together. Maybe that's the... I think that's what seems like a disconnect, but isn't. Can can you help make sure that we see that, Pastor Heidi? Sure. Well, it, it really is the, the trouble which we have with the imprecatory psalms in general. Um, they are psalms that a lot of people are very uncomfortable with in this day and age, you know, asking God to, you know, defeat people, to, you know, crush them underfoot, that sort of thing. We really struggle with that imagery. And you struggle with it so much, in fact, that uh, one of my major criticisms of our hymnal, I don't know if I can say this over the over the air, but um, <laughs> is that they actually cut out almost all of those psalms uh, from the, the beginning. That's why there's so many that are missing uh, from the first part of the, of the, the, the hymnal. I, I know the reasons why they say they did it, but honestly, it's something that I think we should enco- you know, encounter head on and recognize that it is a godly thing to pray for the destruction of those who would you know, crush us, to pray for uh, vengeance, but not our own vengeance, but vengeance which comes from God and God alone. Because that's what makes the, the imprecatory psalms what they are, is the fact that they are calling on God to do something about our own situation. We tend to think of them as saying like, oh, God, you know, I really want to get get these guys kind of a thing. You know, they slighted me a little bit. And so, you know, please just complete, you know, do something against them. But that's not their point. It's a recognition that God is going to fix this particular suffering in a very particular way by giving justice to them in the end. Does that make sense? I think so. And I mean, again, we've we've seen this in those last several chapters of Jeremiah, other than 52, chapters 46 through 51, which were several oracles to foreign nations where the Lord promised that judgment was coming for them too. And, and so, I mean, I think it made me think about it like that, that simply this is a prayer asking the Lord to be who he is, be the just one. Just as you've been just and righteous to me in my sin, so do that for the whole world. And and ultimately, yes, with with you know taking care of the evil that's attacking me. And I think in a recognition that perhaps one of the ways he does that, and the way he, he's done it for you and me as Christians, is by justifying us, by putting to death the sin in us and raising us anew in Christ. And so to pray for that kind of justice for all people is not antithetical to to what we've seen throughout this this poem here in, in Lamentations 1. 
Right. And I mean, we, we should pray for our enemies, as Jesus says, you know, pray for them, even pray for their conversion, as we often do. And that's a good and a godly thing. But there is also something very good and godly about saying, you know, God, give me justice against my enemies. Because in, in some sense, you could say there are some who will always be the church's enemies. And if God wasn't going to do something about that evil, well, then he would not be just. You know, he has to do something about the evil which we see. He has to do something about all of the, the sin and the, and the corruption that has come into our nation. And he will do something about it in his own time and in his own way. And we can pray not only, you know, Lord, please forgive us, but we can also pray, Lord, you know, bring the judgment, bring this evil to an end, you know, bring all of these things that we are suffering to an end so that we don't have to suffer them anymore. Pastor Heidi, we have about about a minute and a half left on the morning. As we reflect on our section of Lamentations 1 and really the, the poem as a whole, help us again to, to see what's being communicated here and, and help us to see how Christ is being preached to us as well. Sure. Well, again, the, the main themes of what we've seen so far is a recognition of sin. It is a recognition that, you know, we deserve the judgment for that sin and it's also a recognition that the Lord is just in what he does. And if we want to, to move in that way, I mean, you can see some very clear connections to what the gospel is doing. You know, a recognition that we are sinners by nature, a recognition that we have deserved the things that we are undergoing. We have deserved the, the punishment which, which God has laid upon us. But it's also a recognition that God is going to do the just thing by keeping his promises his promise to forgive us in his son, Jesus Christ, because it would be unjust for God to you know, have Christ die the way that he did and then to not uh, pay it, you know, to not accept the sacrifice which he has given. So, yes, God's justice extends even to the gospel by show, by, because he has accepted what Christ has done for us so that we would be forgiven. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today with Lamentations chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the Book of Lamentations, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.